My name is uh, Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I'll add my welcome to uh, Chad's welcome and Drew's and Jeff's, and we're glad you're here. If you are seated on that side of the aisle, would you grab the black notebook and pass it down? Um, it's a great way to let us know you're here But if you're visiting, but we also would love to know how we can pray for you. We pray as elders and pastors over those prayer requests every week, and it's an honor for us to pray with you, pray for you, and so um, would love for you to, to do that. While um, you've, I've got you, so First Thessalonians chapter 5, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to finish our Thessalonians study, but I want to tell you um, a little bit about our Easter schedule over the next couple of weeks so that you can begin to make plans. So next week's Palm Sunday, and we'll begin to look at um, the journey that Jesus is going to take to the cross. And then on Friday night before Easter, we'll have a Good Friday service at 6 p.m. here um, in the, at the South Campus. And then on Saturday or Sunday morning, we will have a sunrise service out at the, the pond uh, in the back of the property. I'm from West Texas. It's really a tank, but... Um, we call it a pond, I guess, or fish in it. But uh, at 7 a.m., we'll do a sunrise service. And then after that, at 8, there'll be breakfast, and breakfast will be out and uh, for the morning, and then we'll have 9 o'clock service and 10.30 service. So we'd love for you to join us. Make your plans to be here for what you can be here for. And just a word about the Good Friday service. If you've never been to one, um, it's a great way to prepare your heart for Easter morning. And so, uh, if you've never been, I, I hope you could uh, make the time to be with us. It's a great night of just worship and prayer, and it's a good evening. So, all right. First um, Thessalonians chapter 5. Everybody there? This is what we're going to do. Uh, the, the chapter, it breaks up into three sections. Let me tell you about the three sections. The first 11 verses are all about uh, the day of the Lord to come. And Paul's going to write about the, the day of the Lord and um, some things that we need to know about that. And then, beginning in verse 12, he is going to uh, give some instructions to the church, to the church, individual believers in the church. And then, beginning in verse 23, he's going to say goodbye to the Thessalonians, kind of a um, a sign-off, a, a benediction that he's going to give to them, and it's a beautiful benediction. And I want to look at those three sections this morning because uh, they might seem unrelated if you were just to read through the chapter, but the truth is they're all very related. They're, they're interrelated with each other. I'll tell you how it goes. It's Paul's going to address the day of the Lord, which is a day to come in the future, and at the same time, what he's going to say is, that is a day that, um, that God knows when it is, but in the meantime, in the now, this is how we are to live. And then he'll give us an example of that in the benediction. If you're in 1 Thessalonians 5, I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and if you want to follow along with me, I'll have it up on the screen, or you can following your Bibles or on your screen. Paul says it this way. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no 
need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a woman pregnant. They'll not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We're not the night, uh, we're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of hope and salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Well, if you were here last week, uh, Chad talked about the end of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in about verse 11, is about the resurrection of believers from the dead and the rapture of the church. Paul says it this way. He says, when when, uh, we who are alive, um, we, we who are left... We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds, those that have been resurrected from the dead, to meet the Lord in the air so we'll always be with the Lord at the coming of the Lord. This is the parousia is the word. And it'll happen in a moment. And then verse 18 of chapter 4 says, we're to encourage one another with these words. And it's a beautiful passage it's the passage that's read at the graveside. You know, it's the passage that's read at the memorial service. It's the reminder that we don't grieve as those who have no hope, but we do have hope. And then Paul, in verse, or chapter 5, verse 1, you have in the text here the word now. And it's a word that alerts us that he's changing the subject. There's a new subject coming, and he's saying this is what's next. Uh, and what's next is the day of the Lord. And in, in 5.1, he, he says he talks about the, the times and the seasons, literally the chronos and the kairos, the ages and the events. How and when all of these things to come will happen. And he says, you don't have any need for anybody to write anything about this to you. And he says that for a couple of reasons. One is that um, nobody knows the time. But we don't know when it could happen at any moment. This is what we call the imminence, you know. We don't know when this is going to happen. Secondly... I think he's saying, you already know what you need to know. But we we talked about this. Maybe it is that Paul had already taught to the Thessalonians about this when he was with them. And thirdly, I think he's saying, listen, the Old Testament's pretty clear. In the Old Testament, 
the, the day of the Lord, it's referred to about 20 times, and often when it's referred to, it has the end times in view. There's also another way that it's spoken about. It's called the last days. That happens 14 times in the Old Testament. Always it's, it's the, the end times, what we would call eschatology. And then there's another phrase. Uh, you've got day of the Lord. You've got the last days. You also have where the, about 100 times in the Old Testament, it says, in that day. And that's always looking at the end times. And Paul says, listen, you know everything you need to know about this. We're not going to talk about this. And then what's funny is Paul then goes ahead and talks about it. It's kind of like reviewing the material, you know. I mean, the teacher says, you're ready for the test. And the kid's like, well, and they go ahead and they review the material anyway. So he's going to go ahead, and then he's going to use these metaphors and these word pictures to help make the point. Now, in 5-2, verse 2, he says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, it's the time when God will judge the world and the wages of sin will be paid in full. If you want to read about the day of the Lord, you can read about it beginning in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, Revelation 19, this is John, and he's seeing the day of the Lord unfold in the vision, in this revelation that he has from Jesus. Now, let me put a couple of things together for you, all right? This is for all the, uh, the nerds out here in the room. There are a lot of people that when you read the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what, the, um, what, what a lot of people say we're reading there is we're reading about the rapture of the church. Where the church, so the, uh, the Lord will come, he'll appear in the air, the trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ, this is believers who have died, will, will rise. And then... All of those who are left, the, the church, the believers, we will be caught up with him. We will be raptured. We will be translated from here to being with him. The dead in Christ will rise first and then the rest of the church. And then when you get to chapter 5, Paul then is now going to talk about the events that come after this rapture, namely the day of the Lord. And so from a chronological standpoint, you have the rapture, and then at some point there's going to be the day of the Lord. And then he's got these images, and he's going to pile on these images that describe judgment and hardship and tribulation. Now, we're not going to do this because we don't have the time. And I've actually, I've done it uh, before. And if you're really interested, um, you can email me and I'll send you the, the link where you can go and find it. But in Daniel chapter 9, the end of Daniel chapter 9, you, we are given in that 
in that book, we're given kind of a prophetic calendar, if you will. Now, there's only a few things that we can really date from that calendar, and the rest of it's kind of an undated calendar, um, but it does give you this time period. And the way the prophetic calendar reads is it talks about 70 weeks. And it begins with the return of the Jewish people from exile in Babylon. Now, that's, that's a long time ago. But you find out as you're reading it, the, the, the key to it, and, and, and Daniel explains it, but the weeks are actually, each week is a seven-year period. So there are 70 seven-year periods. And when you're reading the end of Daniel chapter 9, you see that there is this gap between year 69, or the 69th week, and the 70th week. And it's described, the 70th week that is to come, as a time of destruction and desolation and false leader and false promises. And the 70th week in that prophetic calendar is yet to come. That's Revelation 6 through 19. That's the 70th week. And the seven years that that week represents, those are still to come. And we are living right now between the 69th week and the 70th week. This is how the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord to come. It's been prophesied. It will come. And now we're living between what God has already fulfilled and what He has promised will come. And this is the age of the church. It's the age of grace. It's the period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And so Paul says here, but, but so concerning the times and the seasons, the, the days to come. Now the disciples, just before Jesus has ascended to heaven, they ask the same question. In Acts chapter 1 verse 6, they, they come to him, uh, they, they all get together and they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, will, will you restore will, uh, at this time the kingdom to Israel? So in other words, they're saying, okay, you've been resurrected, you've paid for sin, you've conquered death, you've defeated the enemy. So now, is this the time? So now are you going to restore the kingdom? In other words, is it time now for the, for the day of the Lord? And then Jesus answers them. And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, when they're asking. And he says, well, this isn't for you to know. But I want you to, to know and I want you to focus on in the meantime, this is how you are to live between now and then. You, you're going to go out with the gospel. 
you're going to spread the message. You're going to, the good news of the message, the, the, the grace and, uh, and hope and, for, and forgiveness and the coming of the Lord, you're going to go to the whole world. You're going to go everywhere. And this is what we're going to do in the meantime. And it's in this meantime that Jesus says in John 14, where he tells the disciples, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so the times and the seasons, the wind, that's not for us to know. But it is coming, and when it comes, he says, it will be sudden, like a thief in the night, in, in verse 2. Speaks to the suddenness, the unexpectedness. It'll, it'll be unannounced. And for those who experience this, it'll come to them uninvited. The, the idea is that you don't schedule your home break-ins. You know, you don't lock, look at the calendar and you say, well, you know, next Tuesday, that is probably the best day for us to schedule the thieves to come and break in our house in the middle of the night. You, you don't say that. And then I want you to notice that in these first couple of verses, the 5-1 and 5-2 and, and then 5-3, he says, while people, and literally it's, it's, it's clear, them, he's talking about them, and Paul's speaking about others, not, not himself, and not the Thessalonian believers. He means those that are not part of the body of Christ, and on that day, when the day of the Lord comes, they'll be saying things like, well, there's peace and, and security. Now, either saying that because they're deceitful or saying that because they're ignorant, but in an instant, the destruction will come, like labor pains. Now, listen, if you want to know, well, I don't know. This is speculation. Did Paul have a wife that was ever pregnant and gave birth? Probably not, okay? Because he writes like a man would write about this. Because I'm not sure any man who has to then go home with his wife after pregnancy and giving birth would speak about this as destruction, okay? This isn't the illustration they'd use. But Paul, he's trying to make a point. It'll be sudden. And it won't like it be like anybody says, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I, we knew that. We, you know. No, it's going to be surprising. It'll feel like it's coming completely out of the blue. That's what it means. It'll be, it'll be sudden. So the image, the illustration, this pregnant woman, the labor pains, they, they, don't, you know, they don't happen out of the blue, but you know at some point they're coming, they just are. But when they do come, you know, it's like sudden. I mean, every time... We went, every time it was time for Leslie to go to the hospital, somehow I was always caught off guard. I mean, it's not like I didn't know this was going to happen. I mean, I've been watching and, and knowing, but somehow in the moment, it was time. Well, I'm not ready yet. That's the point. Now look at verses 4 and 5. He's going to make a contrast, all right? That's why he says, but. But you, believers. 
You're not in the darkness. The day's not going to surprise you. It's not going to come on you like a thief. In the contrast, he's changing the subject. He's not talking about them anymore. He's talking about you. He's talking about the believers. And he's changing the subject from the details of the events to come to this is how we're to live right now. And the readers, they're not in darkness. This is moral darkness. And think of these descriptions as, as like domains or fears of existence. You, you, like you're either Eagles fan or you're a Cowboys fan. You, you're either in the darkness, morally depraved, or you're a child of the light, right? This is what he means. You, you're children of the light. You're children of the day. You're not children of the night. Believers have the Holy Spirit. And Paul's using these illustrations to, to explain it. And then in, in verses 6 and 7, he's talking about the, our mindsets, our, the dispositions in us. Are, are you alert and sober? Are you like you're sleepy and, and drunk? So notice the images. Thief in the night, labor pains of a pregnant woman. Now there's darkness and light and sleep and sobriety and drunkenness, and then you get to verse 8, and there, there's this little teaser about the army of God, uh, the armor of God with breastplates and helmets, and the, 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 the images are, are rich. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on, and then I want you to notice this. First of all, it's like the um, preview to the armor of God that's, that comes in um, Ephesians chapter 6. That's kind of the full armor. Here's sort of the abbreviated armor. But notice what he says here. He says, the breastplate of faith and love. And then the helmet of the hope of salvation. Faith hope, and love. Paul's already talked about these things right at the beginning. He brings them back up. This is how we're to live. This is what is to define us. This is how we measure success. This is the, the dress code, if you will, the designer armor for believers. Faith and hope and love. That's what we clothe ourselves in. I just want to say as an aside, all right? And I have nobody in mind, I, I promise. I just, or everybody in mind, maybe. But, I mean, are we really clothed in that? I, I, I don't know, but I had to get away from social media a long time ago, um, or at least Facebook. I mean, I still check the news on Twitter, but I had to get away from Facebook because... I, I wanted to still like you uh, as your pastor, all right? Um, because somehow we, we, even believers, maybe especially believers, we lose our minds out there in the, in the inner world social web thing. Faith, hope, love. That's what we're to be clothed in. 
That's what is meant to describe who we are and how we live. Well, in 9 and 10, I want you to notice, he says this, for, for God has not destined us for wrath. Now, there are a lot of people that read that, and they say, well, that, what he's talking about is the wrath of the tribulation, the day of the Lord, the seven years that is to come. And maybe that's true. Maybe exactly what he's talking about. It's often used to speak about the day of the Lord. But Paul says, hey, listen, as believers, you're not destined for wrath. He's talking to the church. It's the word that's specifically used to talk about God's judgment being poured out on sinners. See, here's the reality that you need to know. This is something I don't want you to ever forget from 1 Thessalonians 5.9. If you ever leave this church... You go somewhere, and 20 years from now, somebody says, hey, what's, the one, what's one thing that you took away from um, your time at Bethel Bible Church? Well, what's something that you heard maybe over and over and over again? And I, I want you to know, I want you to be able to go, yeah, I, maybe it's in First Thessalonians, I can't remember exactly the verse, maybe it's 5.9. It is that as believers... You are not destined for wrath. You think, okay. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says it this way. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That the wrath of God for you as a believer is not in your future. And the reason that it's not in your future is because that wrath towards your sin has already been expended. That wrath toward your sin has already been poured out on Jesus. I mean, whatever you experience in life, whether it's hard or defeating or discouraging, whatever it is, here's what you can be absolutely, utter, confidently certain about, is that it is not the wrath of God. As a believer, you will never be the object of the wrath of God. Loving discipline, maybe, most certainly. And a parent who loves their child disciplines them. Maybe it's the product of your own flesh or the world or the enemy. But let me tell you this. Never, ever, as a child of God, is it the wrath of God, or will it ever be the wrath of God?
Paul uses the next bit like bookends. He says it in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 10. And he says it here in chapter 5, verse 9. In one ten, he says, we wait for the Son of Heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God. Jesus delivers us. And here he says, for God's not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. It's the word, by the way, if you ever come across it in the ESV, it's the word propitiation. You find it in Romans chapter 3 and 1 John chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 4. Propitiation, the NIV translates it atoning sacrifice. And, and that's a good uh, description of what a good part of that word means. Jesus died for our sin, but it also includes he became the object of the wrath of God. The death and the resurrection of Jesus, and Paul puts it here because the implications are for our daily life. He died for us. He died on our behalf. He took our punishment. He died for our benefit so that we can live with Him and through Him. And He died as our substitute in our place where we deserve to die. Paul speaks about us as having a different destination. Our destination, we're not destined for wrath, we're destined for eternity with God. And that's determined not by anything we've done. It's entirely dependent upon the work of Christ who died for us. And so in verse 11, he'll say again, just as I told you at the end of verse 4 when we talked about the resurrection of the dead and the rapture of the church, I'm going to tell you again now, encourage one another with these words. Build each other up just as you're doing. We're to remind one another of the truth. We're to encourage one another and edify each other and equip each other with the gospel. Keep repeating things that are true to each other. For many of us, it starts by waking up in the morning and having to preach the gospel to your own soul. I'm loved. I'm loved, and I'm going to live like that's true because my salvation's certain. My salvation's secure. It's forever. Okay, so what about the meantime? How does this work? We know how the prophetic calendar works. We just don't know when it starts. And so we got that check, and, and death may happen, but not to worry. There's resurrection. Check. But what about now? Well, when you get to verse 12, um, it, it's going to read a little bit like this rapid fire, um, everything all at once from your mom as you're walking out the door. Don't forget your coat, and, and drive safe, and don't speed, and Call your grandma and do good on your test and beware of dogs and don't talk to strangers. And he just begins to pile all these things on. 
sort of like that, except Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And every single verse is worth reflection. In fact, every single verse is worth the sermon in itself. But 19 imperatives Paul's going to give. Look at what he said. Let's read from 12 to verse 22 real quick. He says this. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And he's speaking about church leaders, elders, and pastors. And we here at Bethel, we have this plurality of leadership and Paul's instructing the church to say, look, there's leaders and they'll be appointed and we should, you know, we should accept them, we respect them. They have spiritual authority and we want to appreciate them and love them as, as brothers who are leaders among us and obey them. It means when God's servant, led by God's spirit, calls us to obey God's word, then we must do that. And it doesn't mean that every spiritual leader is right every time. This is what I love about Bethel Bible Church. I love this plurality of leadership, the, the plurality of elders. It is this great source of strength and comfort. And I'm going to be the first to tell you, I am not the guy in charge around here. It's a group of men, godly men, who we examine their life and we appoint them as our leaders. And this is great thing to have this great covering of, 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 of these elders in our lives. And listen, there are a lot of times elders make decisions. And there's been times the elders, and I'll tell you this personally, there are elders in this room they will tell you this is exactly how it happens. Elders will make a decision, and it wasn't a decision I would have made. I would have done something different. But being able to rest under the covering of the elders and to submit to their leadership and to say, well, this is what I think. And they say, well, we think you're wrong. And, and, and it's okay. When we pray and we walk out as brothers and I'd walk out under the comfort that, listen, I'm following God's will, not my own. We all get to do that. There will be things the elders do around here and you'll you'll get all twisted up about it. And you can either say, you know what? I'm going to trust the Lord through the elder. I'm going to, I'm going to trust that. I'm going to trust that the Lord's leading those men. Too often today, listen, what happens is people get upset. So I don't like what they did. I don't like the color they painted that thing. Whatever it is. And you leave. Go down the road. You go find someplace else that has the color you like. Or I, I don't know. Paul says, don't do that. Trust the leadership. Trust the Lord through the leadership. All right, enough of that. Verse 14, um, he says, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idol, or the disorderly, or the undisciplined, or the lazy. Admonish them. Encourage the faint-hearted. Now he's talking to us. This is what we do with each other. This is how we live with each other. 
Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every evil, for, from every form of evil. Now, these are straightforward. They explain themselves, and these are for us to meditate on and, and digest and to, and to think about. He's saying, look, there's those that are struggling. Some of it's real. Some of it might be imagined. It's not always easy to determine. It's not always our task to determine. But we're to engage as people of light who illuminate the Word of God by the Spirit of God and and equip each other and encourage each other and edify each other. We're not to be people, he's saying, who spend our lives keeping score. Well, you did this to me, I'm going to be angry at you. We don't do that. We don't get even with each other. We're those people who are to be characterized by rejoicing, not in a superficial way, but because the gospel's true. It's true for me, it's true for you. We rejoice. We're to be people of prayer who are in constant dialogue with God and before God. We're literally children that can approach God's throne of grace with boldness and confidence, knowing that we're accepted and loved. We're to give thanks in and for all circumstances. We're to be illumined by the Spirit. Not not to shut the Spirit out, not to ignore the Spirit. We're to listen with openness to the truth of God's Word. We're to hold everything up to the light because we're people of the light. We cling to that which is good. Apart from God's Word, we have no certain revelation from God. Worship that somehow ignores the Bible is not spiritual. We want to be a people for whom it is evident that the Spirit of God is at work. Well, and then he goes on, and look how he ends it. In verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace, not war, not wrath, not punishment, but the God of peace himself, sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He surely will do it. Our desire is that we'd be found blameless. And blameless means to be in good stead with God. Doesn't mean sinless perfection. We talked about that. 
But it means that the God who calls us is the one who is able to complete the work that he has begun in us. And then notice Paul, he asks for prayer. He's a brother. Pray for us, he says. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss, which Greek is originally translated handshake. It's a joke. I just don't want you to kiss me or hug me, all right? Just... Greet each other with a wave across the room. It's my comfort level, but it's more than that. We should greet each other affectionately, with care and compassion. And then verse 3, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. It's harsh. I don't know why he says it. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace, that the gospel working itself out among us. So what do we do with this? Here's how I'd close. I told you at the beginning of this series that for many believers I know, the biggest question is, well, what am I to do now? I'm a believer. I've been a believer a long time. My faith is stale. My Life is stale, if I'm honest. My life doesn't look that much different than anybody else that I know. I, I want to grow in Christ. I want to be spiritually sensitive. I, I want to know a deeper fellowship and communion with God. I do. It's why you're here. And so I think First Thessalonians gives us this great map, a great blueprint. Words to hear, divine inspired words to lead us. And so what I'd say is I'd say read the letter again and again. And again, what, what if you read it every day for 30 days? Read it with others. Maybe your spouse or your children or your grandchildren. Or a couple of friends over coffee where you just take a chapter at a time and you say, okay, what do we see here? Meditate on these things. The last half of chapter 5 is a great place to meditate. To ask the Lord to show you where He would speak to you about those things He says the end of chapter 5. Ask the Spirit of God to illuminate, meaning to make clear or to shine bright or to open your eyes this Word of God as you are becoming who you already are, a child of God. I would say it is for us to let God's Word have its way. To transform your perspective. How does my thinking need to change? How does your thinking need to change? That it would direct your behavior. You, you, would, you would have a real audit. How, how am I living? How am I living my life? Is it a way that reflects the gospel of grace? Does it, does it speak to the fact that I am loved by God for eternity? that I'm not destined for wrath. In Him there is no condemnation. 
Does my life look like that? I think this letter that Paul writes calls us to deepen our relationships. Does my love for others look and feel like what I see here in God's Word? And then I think it's meant to kindle our hope and our joy. And like every chapter in this letter that ends with the coming of Jesus as our hope in which we fix our eyes so that we don't lose our way. Is your hope fixed there? Do you find yourself feeling the joy of the return of Jesus? I think this letter encourages us that way. I think as we let God's Word have its way in our life, we find our relationship with the God of the Word deepen and enrich in our relationships with each other, reflecting that. So where are you today? What is God's Word calling you to do, bringing to your mind? Do not, Paul says, quench the Spirit of God who is at work even now as we have had the Word of God open before us. And where is He leading you? you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would not leave us alone this morning. That the truths of these five short chapters and this short letter to this church that, that needed to know more of what it meant to live the Christian life and, and to grow as a child of God. Don't, don't leave us alone Father, I pray you'd stir in us and where we need it, would you provoke us and aggravate us and stir us up. Some of us need hope and joy. Some here that haven't had that in a long time. Father, I pray for them. I pray that they would feel that kindled inside of them. Father, there are some in this room who really need to take a step forward towards others in relationships. There are some that are just still shell-shocked from a year and a half of being separated from the world and, and have not pressed back in and have gotten too comfortable living at a distance from others relationally and emotionally. So, Father, would we press in? Maybe there are marriages this morning that need to take a step toward each other. Father, we want our love to look and feel like what we see here. Father, there are some here this morning that just need an honest look at the way that they live their life. Be honest to say it does not reflect one who's loved as a child of God. And Father, for many, would you transform our perspective? We need help in thinking 
rightly. That we'd step back and begin to see life from your perspective. Father, these are things that Paul says you can do. You can do them. And so we ask you to do them in our minds, in our hearts, in our families, in our church. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.